So this morning, it is so good to see you, and uh, you know, it's kind of in that, we're in that in-between spot, right? Christmas is fresh, but we're moving to next year, so uh, Christmas Eve uh, is done behind us, Christmas Day is behind us, but New Year's Eve is right around the corner, and we start a new year, and I wanted to finish up this sermon series called Peace on Earth, the Peace on Earth sermon series, and Christmas is something we can celebrate every day, right? The Advent of Christ as well as looking forward to the second advent, the second coming of Christ. And I wanted to tie those two together this morning. Because uh, when you talk about the first coming of Christ, it's really not something that uh, is, is, uh, is fully mentioned until you... I mean, not fully mentioned. You can't fully appreciate it unless you kind of go to the end of the story and see how it ends. And so I'm going to hold the ending till the, till the end. But I want you to know that's kind of where we're going this morning. I just want to welcome everyone once again and uh, say good morning, and I hope you had a blessed Christmas holiday weekend. Looks like we have several that are still out, and I know we have many traveling. If you did happen to come in, maybe you're a guest. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Maybe you're with family or what have you. We're glad that you came and joined us this morning. I know we have family members of our church family here traveling <clears throat> to other sister churches and places like Florida and, and all over the place, so we praise the Lord for that. It's a great time to be with family and friends uh, this holiday season. If you are kind of isolated and alone, maybe you're even watching online, um, uh, man, just know that we love you, and we're glad that you could join us this morning. Uh, and uh, and you can contact us at uh, HBF Cast. Just go to the contact page there. Uh, you can also text. What is the text number? Ninety four thousand. That's right, ninety four thousand. And we will get back with you as soon as we can, uh, pretty instantaneously, as a matter of fact. So, if you have your Bibles, we turn to the book of uh, <clears throat> Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter nine. It's on the top of your note page. By the way, if you didn't get a note page. Throw your hand in the air, wave like you just don't care, and an usher will come by and give you a note page, and you will have some notes to, scra- uh, to write on as we go through the message. I was going to say to scribble on, but uh, we will have some notes put for you there. So I think I've printed plenty of notes. So you could probably have two pages this morning uh, if you need to have two and, and uh, duplicate the notes. Uh, you could do that as well. But uh, as you turn to Isaiah chapter 9... If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seat rack in front of you and and turn to page 944. Uh, There should be a Bible near you. If you don't have one, you can grab that. We'll be on page 944. I love that song that James sang, uh, How Many Kings. Um, And uh, it's a perfect segue to what we're going to talk about this morning. If if you're just joining us this morning for the first time in this series, uh, this Christmas series called Peace on Earth, uh, we've been talking about the advent of Christ and how he brought peace to earth, how he is the peace. We talked about the promise of the scripture, the person of Christ, and the problem of sin uh, through the last three weeks leading up to Christmas. And of course, we even talked a little bit about peace on Sunday or uh, on Friday night at Christmas Eve service. All the messages have gone together, and this is intended to be the capstone. As today we conclude the series uh, talking about the power of peace. And that brings us full circle to the theme uh, that we've been talking about for this sermon series, which is listed right up here on this sign, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Now, I know you guys got all settled in, you know, everything's in order, but I would ask if we could just stand. It's going to be short. We're going to read God's word together. And we don't do this just to impose upon your comfort, but uh, if you can stand, if you can't, I understand, that's fine. But um, we do this to honor God's word. So Isaiah chapter 9. And verse 6, this is how they did it in Ezra's day, and that God blessed it. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, 
the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Lord of hosts. We're thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for Christ at Christmas. Without Christ at Christmas, it would just be another marketed holiday. And so, Father, we're so thankful for a real meaning, a real depth, a deep, deep meaning, an eternal meaning uh, to this time in which we celebrate the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the opportunity to be able to meditate upon his first coming for these last many weeks and to celebrate it with our family and our friends over the last several days. And so, Father, as we get ready for the new year, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us look not only back at what you did at your first coming, but also look forward to the second coming and, and prepare our lives in such a way that we're ready for your return, that we're doing what you've saved us to do at your coming. And so, Father, we look forward to seeing uh, you come in the clouds and catch us away any day now. And in the meantime, Lord, teach us from your word the things that you want us to know about Christ the King, the Prince of Peace. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So you'll notice I didn't stop at verse 6 this morning. Uh, I included Isaiah 9-7 because it describes the fulfillment of, uh, of time and the role that Jesus plays as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, there's a promise of an everlasting government that is established by the Lord Jesus, and this is very important to the first coming of Christ uh, at his incarnation, as well as the second coming as the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, uh, as we've been keying on. And you'll note that at the end of Isaiah 9-7, the scripture says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This sentence informs us about the things before it. First, this is something that only God can do because its fulfillment is about himself and his own power. <clears throat> it is about who he is and what he is accomplishing both in time and eternity. Second, it will take God uh, an incredible God-sized effort to pull it off. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is what is making Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 happen. And third, God is committed to making it happen because, well, he already spoke it. He is committed. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He's not just going to talk about it. He's going to make it happen. And so uh, God, who cannot lie, will accomplish his mission according to his promise, according to his word. And just as sure as we sit here this morning, this prophecy will be fulfilled in every nuance and every meaning and very literally, he will rule and reign both on this earth and in this universe forever and ever. Amen. So this leads me to our final topic concerning Christ's coming and the power of peace uh, this morning. So as we've clearly set forth over the last several weeks, peace is a precious commodity. And it's so precious because though we have a great supply through our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a supply chain problem, right? And so uh, when we know what happens when there's a supply chain problem, things get even more expensive. And so the, the nature of, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is very important. Jesus has done everything necessary, but we've got to get the gospel where it needs to go. So this thing isn't just about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Now, uh, for those of us that are saved, and we are the church, so my audience this morning primarily is people who are saved right now, we're talking about our responsibility to take the gospel uh, that Jesus has given us and get it where it needs to go on time because there's, a, there's blockages, there's problems. And even though Jesus has solved all the problems... Uh, through himself, there's still a blockade on peace, right? Our job is as ambassadors of Christ to get that message where it needs to go. This last several weeks, paralleling this series, we've been doing evangelism on Wednesday night, and um, it's been well attended, not really. 
And so, uh, and so, but the, the, the content has been excellent. It's been very good, and it, it just really underscores everything that I'm talking about, how it's so important to get the gospel where it needs to go, because when you have something that precious, and it doesn't get where it needs to go on time, you know what? It makes it even more precious. So you take something that's, that's so incredibly valued, it's, it's, you, can't even, uh, you can't even itemize it because it's so valuable, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, his second coming, all of that that we that is wrapped up in the baby Christ, right? And then, of course, his his life as he fulfills those promises, dies and and right, rises again. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So we have this incredible God, and He has this incredible good tidings that He wants us to get out. And yet, sometimes there's there's a there's a there's a problem. We we don't get it out of port, do we? We don't get it out of out of our heart. Don't get it out of our mouth, out of our lips to other people. And it's so important that we get the glorious gospel where it needs to go on time. But nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of, of the insurmountable odds of thousands of years, God has fulfilled his promises to this point, and he will continue to fulfill those promises. People included, right? In spite of us and humanity, God continues to get his promises accomplished. Again, highlighting the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. No matter what curveball you throw at God, he's going to be able to hit it. Right? No matter what information you give God, whatever you put in his equation, he comes out with the right answer because he's God. And uh, he'll take what you give him and he'll still come up with the right answer. So nevertheless, in spite of the, the insurmountable odds over thousands of years, God has fulfilled the prophecy that he has made for mankind to overcome the curse of sin and death through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what kind of incredible power is that? I mean, if you just stop there and think about that. I mean, God has made a way. As, as you know, that song says, God has made a way when it seems there's no way. He's done that. The whole story of his that first advent is Jesus making a way where it looked like there was no way. And he, he, he completely fulfilled the prophecies to the letter. Yet it looked like there was a roadblock that could never be overcome. And he did that. Why? To free us from the roadblock that we have called sin and death, which is impossible to overcome unless we come to and through Christ. So when the angels said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men, they weren't kidding. Luke 2.14. They were not speaking in hyperbole. They meant every word that they said. And the advent of Christ and the peace on earth and the goodwill toward men was very literal. It's because Jesus' birth, because of Jesus' birth, we have hope, we have life, we have peace through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that the preaching of the gospel is the, Romans chapter 1 tells us, the power of God unto salvation. The power, you've got the power, right? But the issue is, are we getting the power where it needs to go? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. So if you don't have anything to look forward to, right? A new year's coming, and there's some folks that probably don't feel like they have a lot to look forward to. It's, there's some despondence out there today, but listen... As the body of Christ, we've got everything to look forward to. There is nothing holding us back. So if you don't have anything to look forward to, you can look forward to eternity this year. Because the power of the Prince of Peace, uh, man, I tell you what, that changes everything. I mean, really, even if, you're, even if your next day, your next week, your next year is just totally down the toilet and is terrible, you guess what? You still have eternity to look forward to. And that's the difference between those of us that are redeemed and the world that is still lost and waiting for the glad tidings that they've never really either heard, or if they've heard it, they haven't received it. So I haven't even gotten in my outline yet. So let's take, let's take a look at the outline, because we're talking about the power of the Prince 
and and in essence, the power of peace, which comes from the Prince of Peace. So I'm going to give you three things this morning that the Prince of Peace uh, provides through his power. The first thing is the Prince of Peace defeated sin. He has that kind of power. He has the power to defeat sin. This is the reason for the incarnation. This is the reason for the incarnation. Christ became a man so he could atone for man's sin. Now, as we're looking at that word atone, uh, we're going to define atone. The word atone comes from the Hebrew word for cover. Uh, the Hebrew word is actually kapar. Uh, and so Hebrew, in, in the Hebrew, and it's found first in Genesis 6 and verse 14. And so in Genesis 6 and verse 14, uh, if, you, if you were to look that up, I'm not going to have you look it up for time's sake, but it says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and, uh, and without with pitch. And when we hear the word pitch, uh, we often think of pitching a baseball, but you know we're talking about the pitch like we would call today tar, right? And they're going to put pitch all over that. What what they do that for? Well, to cover it, to make it watertight, to seal it. And so that word that is used for cover uh, in the Old Testament, kapar, is also the same word that's translated atone in the Old Testament, all the way through Exodus and all those mentions of atonement are in the Old Testament. That's the same word. It means to cover in that sense. But it's also the same exact word they use. They interchange it with the word mercy seat and purged in Exodus as well. So to cover, to purge, of course, and and, and it's very connected to the the work of redemption uh, that's going on in in the tabernacle in the Old Testament and also the temple. And so when Wycliffe translated the first English Bible in 1384, he translated the word atone into English. That was not an English word at the time, and it just simply is two words brought together, at one, and he just put it together and created a word in English, atone. And so that was a, that, so the Bible created that word for us here in the English language at that time in 1384. And so it literally means at one, and this is because the blood of Christ atones for our sin and makes us one, right, with Christ. And so the only mention of the word atonement in the New Testament is found in Romans chapter 5 and verse 11. And, uh, and so we don't have the verses up today, so you're going to have to do old school. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 5 and verse 11. And you are going to have to be nimble because I don't, I'm going to have to move along briskly. So please be ready to go. The verses are on the screen. Romans chapter 5 and verse 11, the Bible says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, right? The atonement. This is the only mention in the New Testament of that word atonement. And so uh, the only mention is found here at the end of verse 11. Now, if you go back to verse 10, notice what it says. For if, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Right? That's the context leading us into this word uh, that we find atonement at the end of verse 11. It's dealing with the fact that we were enemies that have been reconciled, right? We have been brought together. We have made, been made at one with Christ. So Jesus is our, he's our ransom, right? He is, Christ, Christ became man so he could atone for man's sin. But, uh, but as we look on further, Jesus is our ransom. Now go back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Mark 10 and verse 45. And you're, again, uh, move briskly with me there. Um, I'm going to turn there, and if I get there... You should be there too. We're going to do it that way. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Mark 10, 45. The Bible says here, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom. He gave his life a ransom for us. There's movies out 
today called ransom. So in exchange for our life, right, we, we, God gave his son. And we know that from John chapter 3 and verse 16 and what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. He's also our justification. He has the power to justify us. In the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 5, a verse that many of you may already know, Romans 5 and verse 12, the Bible says in uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Wherefore is by one man sin sin entered into the world, and death by sin... Um, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And if you go further down in that chapter, in verse 18, it says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Uh, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Of course, we know that he's talking about the disobedience of Adam. Many were become sinners. He goes on to say, moreover, in verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Uh, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as the sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin had a heyday with the law. It went, once we went from one law, which was don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, to the, 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 the law that was given from God to, uh, of, uh, through uh, human law, through Mo- Noah, and then we got the Mosaic law through Moses. With each iteration of, of that uh, process, uh, man became increasingly and increasingly and increasingly condemned. But with that increase comes the grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law and has freed us from that curse. He has, he has reconciled us. He has justified us through his shed blood on the cross. He is our reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, another passage that many of you already know, probably, uh, but it's a good, good to rehearse these things. It says, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We often talk about the word and the ministry of reconciliation, Right? Well, we get that from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 19 and 20. And, and so the Bible is very clear here that uh, we are reconciled uh, unto him. He's brought us together as part of the atonement. He's also our mediator. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and it goes on to say, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That word ransom comes up again there in First Timothy two six, and so he has he has uh, he he is our mediator. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And I've highlighted that several times in in uh, John fourteen six. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Today we live in a pluralistic society, and uh, our young people are being bombarded now perpetually with the multiverse and all of those things. Uh, and there's not a multiverse. There's a universe. And God is, is God is all, and He is He is in all, and He is over all, and He is through all. Right? He, God is He's large and in charge. Let me just put it that way. That there's not multiple gods, and there's not multiple universes. There's one God, and He's in charge of all of it. And uh, the reality is is that the Bible is very clear that it is through Jesus Himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way that we are reconciled to God. He is our mediator. There's only one mediator between God and men, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. And so uh, our propitiation 
is also through Christ. Now, we used that word in 1 John a few weeks back in our study. We talked about that in 1 John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is our advocate, and he is our propitiation. And at that time, we talked about that instead of us, it's him, right? He is their propitiation for our sins. And, and so um, that passage also is parallel with Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, where it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, it doesn't use the word propitiation, but in essence, it's instead of us tasting death, he tasted our death for us. He took on our own, uh, the, he took on our sin, and he tasted death in our stead instead of us. And so he is the propitiation, uh, which we've already covered in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, and also that ties to 1 John 1, or chapter 2, and verse 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, Wherefore, in all things it, is beho- it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and uh, faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So uh, I often, you'll hear me talk about Jesus Christ and his priestly work. He was, he's the high priest. He's a better priest than Aaron. In Hebrews it says he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he's more powerful. Uh, he has a, his ability to reconcile goes beyond the Mosaic law. He kept all of that, and he's also able to reconcile Adam's fallen race. He's able to reconcile everything in himself. He is our high priest. He is our propitiation. He is our advocate. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, the Bible says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's not just the propitiation for uh, for the Jews. He's not just a propitiation for the church. He's a propitiation for all men. And if you don't receive him as your sacrifice for sin, then you are of all men most miserable. You are dead in your trespasses and sins because he is the only way to escape. He is the only door. He is the only exit. And so our perfect and complete substitutionary atonement for sacrifice is what Jesus Christ is, the Prince of Peace. He has the power to be our perfect and complete substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That's a big word. That's a lot of words I'm throwing out there. But what does that mean? Well, it's in essence the same things I've been talking about. In Hebrews 10, in verse 4, the Bible says, for it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. What did they do in the Old Testament? Well, they atoned. They covered for sins. But when you look at atonement in the New Testament, what Jesus has done, he's done more than cover our sins. He's He's completely cleansed us of our sins. He has purged us of our sins through his blood, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats uh, to take away sins. He goes on in verse 5 of chapter 10 of Hebrews and says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of a book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when... Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which uh, we will, we which, I'm sorry, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that, that is important in verse 10 there because it deals with the fact that Jesus' substitutionary atonement took place once for all, one time in history. There's some religions today 
that would say that they're Christian. They're, they're really not. They're mystery Babylon religion, but they teach that Jesus is perpetually suffering for our sins. No, he's not. He suffered once for all, and he said it's finished. He had the power that in, within three hours to atone for the sin of the world, which is a monumental feat in itself. And every high priest that standeth daily ministering and offering uh, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Those Hebrews that are reading Hebrews, going like for generations we've been going through the Mosaic Law. Sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day, year after year. This dude in three hours, one sacrifice for the entire world forever, and it's done. He sits down at the right hand of God. Yeah, that's the kind of power we're talking about. That's the kind of purity we're talking about. That's the kind of, that's who we're, when we talk about this baby Jesus, he's God in the flesh. He's some kind of sacrifice. He's some kind of propitiation. He's some kind of justification. He's an amazing advocate. He's amazing propitiation. He's an amazing substitutionary atonement for our sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, and, 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 now, and, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. I think that's about as succinct as you can say it. 1 John 3 and verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, plural, right? All of our sins. And there's no sin in him, right? And in him is no sin. He was sinless, the sinless son of God. So all, all this was in God's divine decree. All that, I mean, I just gave basically a quick synopsis on atonement um, that could put you to sleep. But listen, hang on with me. I, said, I went through all of that just to say that all of that was contained in Genesis 3.15. If you were hanging around the first week I started this message, that's where I started. I went all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and we saw that passage where, where God said, I will put enmity between these, addressing Satan. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. I'm going to put a war there. I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So what happened? Well, the devil wanted to pick a fight. And he found somebody, and he found a way to do it. He came down. If somebody picks on your kids, how do you feel about that? Not very good, right? And so the devil shows up in the garden. He's picking on Adam and Eve. Now they're stupid enough to fall into it, but they do. And so as he's dishing out punishment, he turns to Satan and says, Hey, hey, you, you want, you want a problem? I'll give you a problem. We're going to have a problem between your seed and this woman's seed. And this problem's going to come out, and it's going to, and it's, it's going to bruise his head heal and it's going to crush your head pal and just chew on that for about four thousand and i'll be back <laughs> you know and that he just leaves it out there in the atmosphere he just he just speaks it into existence and it is so and that, guys i tell you it is, is amazing that little prophecy in genesis three fifteen. and when jesus said that what's amazing is he wasn't just dealing with satan and he wasn't just dealing with adam and eve in the midst of that he already knew what he was going to do because he's god and he could take all these equations and all these variables, and he's just gonna he's gonna make it happen. And I've already preached, so you can go back and listen to how that all happened, and look at all the prophecies. I don't have time to rehearse all of that, but you all know what I'm saying. He, I mean, this is an amazing thing that God did when He made this decree in Genesis three fifteen. The, as if you were looking at this from a scientific perspective, right? The potential, you know, there's kinetic energy, which is energy in motion, but then there's like potential energy. So like a, a little, a rod of uranium is like, you know, 
I don't know what, a, I don't, I wouldn't know, a, if I had a rod of uranium, I'd probably die of radiation, but I wouldn't know, right? I didn't, and I would never know that you could somehow energize that thing and, and turn it into a nuclear power plant, right? What is that? It's got potential energy. So when they were running the, you know, those, the first atomic bomb, I'm really getting out of my league. I shouldn't be talking about these things. I don't know what I'm talking about. But I do know this, that, that whenever they, they did the atomic bomb, it, what, it, it had potential energy. When they were flying those planes over the Pacific, nothing was happening. But once they dropped those bad boys, all this energy come busting out of it. Potential energy. I mean, and then it became kinetic, right? Once it started moving, it, it really moved. And, uh, and so when I think of Genesis 3.15, that's really what I think of. When I think of Jesus Christ, and everything that he's done, he's like, it's like he's just getting started. But man, he is going to blow up. And I don't mean that in a negative way, in a positive way. Jesus Christ has just been moving and moving and moving through time. The only thing that slows him down is humanity. And the only reason it slows him down is because he allows it to. It's because of love. You cannot get away from the doctrine of love. He doesn't need us, but he still wants us. And man, that's that's because he loves us. And he loves humanity. And that's why he went to the he didn't just destroy us. He didn't just he could have said, Man, Adam and Eve, you're done. I'm done with you. I'm gonna do something else. I'm gonna take these monkeys over here and I'm gonna make them the next thing. You know, I don't know. He'd have done something. But he didn't. He he hung with us because he's going somewhere with this story. This potential energy of the of our atonement was already present in the declaration and the sentencing of Satan in the garden. It was already there. It just took about 4,000 years before the power was evident in the manger. And about what a way, what a, way, what a sucker punch. I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna, he makes this heavy-duty statement, and then he comes in the form of a baby. I'm sure the devil was like, what? What are you, what are you doing here? No problem. I'll get Herod to take care of that. When Jesus said, it is finished, by the way, it is finished. I mean, it's no wonder that the angels sang at the birth of Christ. Why? It was a big deal in the battle for souls. When Jesus became a man, became a human, the first time, the only time he's ever became flesh in the sense of, of, of joining with Adam's race, he's all God and all man. I mean, that was, that was big news. There's a reason they were excited. There's a reason that they were praising God. There was a reason there was good tidings on earth. And of course, as the lamb grew and was to be and found spotless over the course of time, the perfect sacrifice for sin was offered. And in John 19.34, the Bible says, The blood and the water came out of that lamb as his body hung on the cross. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, and the sacrifice of the lamb was acceptable to the Father. And three days later, Jesus arose from the tomb and he ascended to the third heaven as our high priest and presented his perfect sacrifice before the throne. He is the high priest of our salvation. And that's why we don't need to call any man father because Jesus is our priest and he makes intercession for us. He's even given us the Holy Ghost as our intercession, right? So we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's an amazing thing. So from the womb to the tomb, Jesus was victorious over sin. He took everything humanity could throw at him and he just stomped right over the top of it with grace, with love, and with meekness and humility. He is the definition of meekness and humility and grace and love 
all those definitions, the fruit of the Spirit. He is, when you get in the book of Galatians chapter 5, and, you know, in your, if your Bible's like mine, there's just a picture of Jesus in there, right? He's just, he is that. He is the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus, there he is. It's not where's Waldo, it's there's, where's Jesus? He's right there. You just saw him. He's love, he's joy, he's peace, he's long-suffering. I mean, he's goodness. I mean, he's gentleness. I mean, he's all of that. That's who he is. He is the definition. From the womb to the tomb, Jesus was victorious over sin. That's the kind of power that he had in his peace. Amazing. The prince of peace defeated sin. Hallelujah. Man, that's awesome. I mean, it really is truly awesome. Just not here this morning, but he'd be proud of me using the word awesome in the proper context. It is awesome, the power that he had over sin, and we haven't even gotten to the end of the book of Revelation yet. We're still in motion, and he's got this kind of power over sin. And if you're saved, you got power over sin through his grace and his goodness. Okay, point two. The Prince of Peace also defeated death. Oh, that's a big one. Let's do some defining of death. Death is, and you guys know this if you've been through our discipleship one, uh, death, somebody tell me, what is death? Just one word, or maybe two, or three. Yeah, separation, separation from God. That's all it is. Death is separation. The first mention of death in Scripture is found in Genesis 2.17. That's where we find the word uh, die for the first time. In Genesis 2.17, you know the verse, it says, But of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Okay, so we understand that the fall of man occurs as a direct result of not obeying the one, the singular command that God had that would have preserved life. Just one command. Just one command would have preserved life. All you had to do is keep one command. And of course, they didn't. Adam died or was separated, right, from God instantly the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And he knew he had fallen. And he hid himself and began covering his sin and shame with the works of his hands in the garden, right? As he, they sewed fig leaves together. They bound those things together and they put those things on to cover their sin and shame. What all of us do, we try to cover up our sin and shame with our own works. And it is into this scene that the Lord steps into the problem. And I've already preached on that. Again, you can go back and listen to several sermons, but Jesus Christ just steps right on into the problem. He steps right in the middle of it. And he calls for Adam. Where are you at, Adam? Where are you, Adam? And he's calling for Adam. Adam wasn't looking for God. God came looking for him. And, of course, he finds him in the garden. And though Adam died spiritually in a day, uh, God was, had a plan to take care of that. And, of course, you know the story, and I won't belabor it. He says, take an innocent animal and slay that animal. Take coats of skin and cover your nakedness. Of course, that's what happened. Something that was living had to die and shed its blood so that their sin could be atoned, be covered properly. Of course, works of righteousness, right? That's what Titus says. We're not saved by works of righteousness that we've done. No, we're saved by Jesus Christ, right? We're saved by his work of righteousness on the cross. He's the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And so it's so important that we understand that we have to have the adequate sacrifice for our sin. Our sin is so grievous. It's not, our good works are not enough. Right? Our works of righteousness will not cut it. Not of works, it says in Ephesians, lest any man should boast. Right? We would be saying, look what we covered ourselves up with. 
And God says, that's not enough. You need to be covered in the Lamb of God. You need to be covered by the Lamb. And though Adam died spiritually in that day, it took his body over 900 years. He lived to be 930 years, and then physically he died. So today, if, if, and of course that, that is a, that's also gives us a, a shadow, a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus Christ died in a day on the cross, and then he rose again the third day. But he will also rule and reign for a thousand years in the coming millennium. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. When you get saved, how long does it take you to get saved? Instantly. Boom. I got saved March 25th, 1987 in an instant. Once I called upon the name of the Lord, I was saved. But yet, it takes some time before it's manifest. What will ha- what's going to happen to this body? There's a lot of, in every one of you that's saved, there's potential energy you don't even really recognize. The Holy Spirit has sealed your soul till the day of redemption, and, and the Bible promises us that you're going to get a new body. You're, you're full of light, whether you realize it or not. It's not physical light, it is spiritual light. And, and so God has a work that he's going to do in us, and he's going to fulfill it until the day of Christ. Right? He's working that out in us according to Philippians chapter 1. So today, if you wanted to reverse the curse, it happens in a moment when you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, but it takes years before you see the fulfillment of your faith in the glorified body. I'm still not there, and you're not there. We don't have our glorified bodies yet, but we will in due time. In the foyer, we have a Christmas tree with ornaments of those who have gone before from our local New Testament church. It's good to have Reet here, by the way. Reet Sparks, man, it's good having you here. Thanks for coming to see us. And, um, and so each name on that tree is important. It's remembered. It's, most importantly, every name is remembered by God. Amen? And Jesus made himself a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. What's the result of that? Well, the result is all those that are born again, those that, have, that, are, that are in Christ have inherited his nature. And they're like the stars in heaven, according to 1 Corinthians 15. When you look at those, those ornaments on that tree, don't think about a tree. Think about that as a universe and people magnified and the glory of Christ shining in them for all of eternity. It's amazing to consider the glory that will be revealed in us. The result is that born-again Christians inherit eternal life in an instant when we call upon the name of the Lord, but we spend eternity in a glorified body. What a glorious victory over death. I mean, it is a glorious victory over death. I mean, you're like, oh man, I'm saved. I got out, got out of hell. Well, yeah, that's, it's awesome to get out of hell, but there is so much more to our redemption than what we got out of. It's what we're going to as well. Now, the day I got saved, I was like, yeah, I'm glad to get out of hell. But the longer you go, the reason you become a disciple is because you realize to whom much is given, much is required. You're stewarding this gift that God has given you. It's a glorious gift. Death is also a journey. Yeah, death occurs in an instant, doesn't it? It occurred like that. It took 900 years for it to be totally manifest in Adam's life. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, though, the Bible says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. At the end of the journey, we find ourselves in heaven or hell. Life is like a journey, isn't it? We're all walking through this life. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, Paul said, For I am, a, I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, who is far better. He knew where his journey was taking him. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He was torn between going home to heaven and staying on earth where he was ministering for the Lord. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote in verse, four of chapter six, or verse 6 of chapter 4, 
for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. You know, even the world understands this. When I got saved in 1987, there was a new group out called the Judds. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Some of you are like, nope, because you're too young. But uh, this group came out. One of the first songs they had out that was on the radio. We used to listen to the radio once upon a time. It's this thing that you just push the button and turn the knob. But anyway, and so the first thing on the radio was this song, I Know Where I'm Going. Don't you want to come too? I got my reservation. I've got one for you. And I remember hearing that song, and I'm like, that sounds like my salvation. Actually, it, it was a song uh, that was based on that. And the lyrics spoke of, of getting a reservation and getting uh, one for someone else. That song encouraged me because it spoke to the assurance of salvation that I had in Christ. At least that's how I interpreted it. I don't know. They could have been talking about anything, but that's how I heard it. But, you know, the world knows that. that this life is a journey. There's an old spiritual that uh, Rod Stewart used to sing in Jeff Beck. It's called... Uh, People get ready. And it's actually, it's an old Negro spiritual about getting ready. These guys, I don't know if they're ready or not, but the lyrics are literally talking about crossing over the Jordan River and entering the promised land and how you got to get ready. You don't need a ticket. You just get on board. The trains are coming. You better get on board, right? The sinners don't get to go to the promised land. You got to get on board. And uh, go back and listen to that. It's not because they are super spiritual. It's because they stole it. <laughs> it's true. Sorry. It may, hey, man, I would love for Rod Stewart to give me a call and correct me. I would, and I would eat crow and Jeff Beck, man, guys, whatever it takes. Even Seal. Seal sung that song. You guys know the song I'm talking about? People get ready. There's a train coming. And that, and that train is taking you to the promised land. Man, the world knows that. This life's a journey. And you know what? If you're not on the right side at the end of it, you're on the wrong side. And you're going to end up in hell. You're either on a destination with eternal life or you're going to end up like the rich man in Luke 16 who awoke in hell. Now, do you think the rich man in Luke 16 started his journey the day that he died? No. It started long before that with decisions after decisions after decisions. I tell you what, there's only one decision you've got to make to go to heaven, and you guys know what that is. That is to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And in an instant, it changes you. There's power there over death. Death is Satan's will for man. From the opening pages of Scripture, we see the author of life, God as, as the author of life. But the antagonist is Satan and a third of his angels who followed that w wicked leader into perdition and will continue to follow him. Everlasting fire is the eternal separation that God has decreed for the devil and his angels. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, the Bible says, Then shall they say unto, unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. When Satan, is when Satan introduced sin, he introduced death to Adam's race. And, and, and of course, <clears throat> it's the same thing that he's facing, a death sentence. You know, Herod wanted to slay the author of life. And so he sent his henchmen down to Bethlehem, as we saw over the last several weeks, to do what? To execute little innocent children, two years and younger. Why? Because he was given over to death. Those that hate God love death. And life through Christ, conversely, is God's will for man. Right? God, the devil's will is death. God's will is life. And through life in Christ, 
you'll find God's will for man. In, in Matthew one twenty one, the Bible says, "In uh, she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." He was on a life saving mission. That's all Jesus was doing. He came to this earth to save lives. That's what he was. He is the he is the Savior. His name means Savior because he will save us from our sin and death. Thirty years after the angel of the Lord told Joseph to name the Messiah Jesus, meaning Savior, John the Baptist burst on the pages of Scripture with his introduction of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And he says, uh, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Why did he take away the sin of the world? So he could take away the sting of sin and death. And of course we celebrate that. We celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death. Paul's letter to the Corinthians hits a crescendo in 1 Corinthians 15 in the resurrection chapter. And this incredible celebration of the gospel and its fulfillment in, in, our, in our resurrection, not just the resurrection of Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the, the law. Of course, we know Jesus fulfilled the law. Paul, writing to the Colossians, says in chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, And ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with their circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And just as a quick clarification, that operation and that baptism is not water baptism, that is a baptism of the Spirit of God. When you get saved, the Holy Ghost comes in and circumcises your body from your soul, and you are sealed until the day of redemption. The text goes on to say, in verse 13, And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What did he do with our sin and death? He nailed it to his cross because he fulfilled the law. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. It looked like Jesus was dying. It looked like Jesus was given up. It looks like Jesus has been had, but the whole time he was winning. And Judas, by the time he figured it out, it was too late. He couldn't stop it. The wheels were in motion, so he went it out. He went out and killed himself, and went to his own place because the wheels. Jesus had already won. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse four. The Bible says, "For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon." Right? He's not saying just get rid of this flesh. He says, "No, no. There's more. We are going to be clothed upon that mortality. Right? Death might be swallowed up of life." Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. The life that's abiding in us today is Christ, and is by his Spirit. We don't look to get rid of our flesh. We look to get our flesh changed in the very image of Christ. It's incredible what God has in store for us. Therefore, we are always confident, uh, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. How many of you today could say, man, I am willing and I'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And I'm not trying to get Jim Jonesy. There's no, there's no Kool-Aid. There's no Kool-Aid. Okay. But I'm just telling you, you're a dangerous group of people. 
You're dangerous when you long for heaven more than you long for the things of this life. When you're on that train and you're going to glory and all you really are focused on is where you're going, all of a sudden everything else just doesn't mean as much. It's not that big of a deal, though it's a big deal. There's a lot of big deals going on. There's a lot of crazy things that can captivate your attention. But listen, the biggest deal is death and sin, and it's been won. And you're on the train and you're going to glory. Hallelujah to you. That's awesome. And all you got to do is take everybody you can with you. There ain't nothing going to get you down. That sounds like a song. I think there was one of those in the 80s too. But the power of peace, it's the power of God. It's amazing. Sorry. The Prince of Peace, he defeated sin. The Prince of Peace, he defeated death. And lastly, the Prince of Peace defeated the dragon. I told you I'd get to Revelation eventually, and I need you to turn to this now as we conclude. Revelation chapter 12. It won't take me very long to, to do this, but I do need to get into this text with you. I was going to start here, and I decided, you know, this really is not a good place to start. I'm going to end here. But I've really been taking everything to this direction because, again, from Genesis 3.15, it's been building. And God takes us in the Bible to the, the last book, and he brings us to this interesting Curious passage in Revelation 12, in verse 1, it says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for, devour, to, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was brought up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that, there should, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days, twelve hundred and sixty days. So first of all, I need to say point A. This is really important that you understand this because it could be easy to misunderstand this in the context of all these messages about Christmas. The woman is Israel, not Mary. Okay, be, care, be careful there. There are some people that will teach this, is, this woman is Israel. Now, obviously, Mary's implicated in this story, and I'll, I'll lay that out. But this woman is not Mary. It is Israel. Again, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Okay? So God already covered that in Isaiah chapter 9. That's really important doctrinally. Don't miss that. Okay? So this is, is apparent by the context right here in Revelation as well. As John is looking into the future and at a time frame in the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week being described here in Revelation 12 and verse 6. Mary, however, is important to this prophecy for it is through her that the virgin birth that is spoken of in this context, occurred, of course, in the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14, and that Jesus, the Messiah, was born to the nation of Israel. Mary was very important in that process. However, uh, she is not clothed in the sun, right? Uh, that, is not, that is not who Mary is. In the text there, in chapter 12, it says, um, uh, where is that at? I lost it. Um, verse 1, under her feet, uh, the, she's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. That is not dealing with Mary. That's dealing with the nation of Israel. And so the moon under her feet is in reference back to the prophecy given 
uh, by uh, Joseph in Genesis 37, 9. He dreamed yet another dream and, and told, <clears throat> told his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And of course, if you know the story, when he rolled that out on his dad and his brothers, they were all like, who in the world do you think you are? I mean, even his dad was like, son, what is wrong with you? And of course, that prophecy wasn't fully fulfilled. Of course, his brothers did come and worship at his feet. But Joseph never fully fulfilled that prophecy. Uh, the, the moon and the stars didn't worship him, but they will worship Jesus. Israel is redeemed by her Lord and Savior, the creator of all. The 12 tribes will inherit the constellations in heaven, and the sun and the moon will not be necessary when Jesus rules and reigns. That's the kind of power he has. In reference to Christ's dominion over the sun, the rapper Shai Lin says this in his uh, song, I'm Hot, and don't laugh, I'm just serious. He says, uh, he's talking about the earthly sun. He says, I drop heat and flames, and compared to me, you're lame, but I would never be the same once the Lord Jesus came. Yeah, it's true, I'm the son of man, but the coming of the true son of man helped me understand. And then he gets into this description of the coming of the Son of Man in comparison to the earthly sun that we see in the sky. He says, at his birth, God's, God's unfolding plan revealed with his hand of skill. I watched the stars stand still. Still, He came to address fallen man's situation. His face was like mine at his transfiguration. I thought I was strong, but I'd never seen power till the cross when it went dark for three hours. When he reached the crypt, brag and cease from my lips. Because when Jesus flipped the script, I got completely eclipsed. I thought I was legendary, but my lesson's scary. Because in heaven, hear me, you'll no longer be necessary. Repent and humble yourself, and in time you'll see. In the kingdom of your Father, you will look like me. You see, God is doing something with the Son. He is the Son of righteousness. Malachi chapter 4 makes it very clear. In Revelation 21 and verse 23, the Bible says, "In the city had no need of the Son and of the, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb, the Lamb is the light thereof. He literally illuminates New Jerusalem with his own glory. And I would, I would contend he illuminates the entire universe. If it weren't for that crystal sea that's covering the throne, I think we would all be burned up by his glory today. He's withholding his glory until he deals with sin. He's such a good God. In Revelation 22, 5, it says, And there shall be no need or no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they <clears throat> shall reign forever and ever. Who we're talking about in Revelation chapter 12, of course, is, is the sun that's referred to in Isaiah 9-6. We're dealing with his glory that will be revealed. We're dealing with the power that he has over creation, which he spoke into existence. And point B, the travail is the pain associated with the delivery of Jesus to his rightful place as king of kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus' birth is obviously a part of this fulfillment. We see in the, in the taxation leading up to the 70-mile journey uh, on the eve of Christ's birth in Matthew chapter 1 and the wicked response of Herod in Matthew chapter 2, slaying those, uh, those children. That was all satanic and designed to stop what God was doing. Satan was at work immediately to stop the Prince of Peace from ascending to his throne. Herod immediately recognized it once he finally got on a couple, you know, whether, however long it was between Jesus' birth and, and the time that he heard from the wise men. And the travail associated with Revelation 12 refers to the grip Satan, uh, Satan <clears throat> is exerting as he, as he tries to wrest the kingdom of Christ uh, to his own demise. 
The book of Revelation is written to give us insight. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Give us insight to how this will occur through much tribulation. And you women know better than I that when you give birth to a child, there's much tribulation. Getting Jesus Christ to this earth came through a lot of tribulation for the nation of Israel. came through a tribulation for Mary as well, literally, as as she gave physical birth. But yet the tribulation is not over. Jesus still has prophecies that he's fulfilled. He's going to come back and rule and reign on this earth. He is going to rule and reign through Israel. He is going to establish his kingdom on this earth. And it's not going to come without much tribulation. And that's what's being written of in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And so Satan refuses to accept his defeat. Why is there so many problems? Because Satan is unwilling to acknowledge his defeat. He's already defeated. He's, a, he's, a lo- he's lost. It's over. But he doesn't know that yet. It's like the score is a zillion to nothing, and there's not any more time on the clock, pal. But he's just playing it out. There's no way he's coming back. But he thinks he will because he's full of pride. Satan, has, Satan and his followers are on a journey to death and hell. We talked about a journey today. We talked about a train. What train are you on? Satan and his followers, the Bible says, they're on a train to hell. Ezekiel 28, 14 talks about how he started as the anointed chair that covered the throne. And I got the verses for time's sake and mental capacity. I'm not going to read them all in detail. But he started as, a, as the, the, the anointed chair that covered the throne. Then he ends up in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 as the prince and power of the air, the spirit that, that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He's actively working today, just as he was in the first century when Jesus was born. There's a reason that atrocities occur. There's a reason that there is spiritual persistence and satanic resistance. He is the prince and power of the air. It should not surprise us when we get some resistance. I mean, what else does the devil want? Is he going to help us accomplish God's mission and God's power for his glory? Of course not. But ultimately, ultimately, when we get to the book of Revelation... We see that he will fall to earth in the tribulation and feign being the God-man. He's going to feign being the Christ. This is called the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate. It's found in Daniel chapter 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it occurs midway through the seven-year period commonly called the tribulation period that started with the beginning of sorrows and ends with what's called the great tribulation as defined in Matthew chapter 24. And as he comes to that place, the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself, above all, that is called God, or that is, uh, that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. God has given us these things to help us remember that, you know what, the war is still active. The, 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 this world, we can talk about peace and goodwill on earth all day long, and we should. We should remember Jesus' birth. We should understand that he is the Prince of Peace. But we also got to understand there are still spiritual bullets flying. And we don't do Jesus any service if we stop with him in the, in the womb. We got to take him to the tomb. And then we got to get him out of the tomb and get him to the third heaven and realize that he has given us the spirit of God and the word of God and the local New Testament church of God to accomplish his mission and his power in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. We are here on a, 
on a, not a search and destroy, but a search and rescue mission, right? We are 180 degrees, degrees the opposite of what the devil's agenda is for humanity. We are here to, serve, to, to seek and save that which is lost because that's what Jesus was all about. And I tell you what, the devil is here to seek and destroy every soul he can that is made in Adam's image and would dare be transformed into the image of Christ. So Satan's rebellion will be crushed by Jesus. In Revelation 19, 19, the Bible says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and in, in with him the false prophet and wrought miracles before him, which he deceived them and had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. And these both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. He comes back as a conquering king against an insolent, unrepentant, a demonic, demon-possessed culture that hates him. Now, fortunately for us, we're riding with him back as we're taken out before that. But you've got to understand, this has not yet happened, and it's on the docket. The good news is this, in Revelation chapter 20, the devil is defeated. That dragon, as it says in chapter 12, is taken care of. It says in verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, uh, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. You want to work your way to heaven? There you have it. You can go to the great white throne judgment. And guess what's going to happen? You'll get cast in the lake of fire. It says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up, and the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's a lot of reading there in Revelation chapter 20, but it's very serious. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. The devil's actively opposed everything Jesus has said since the garden. And he's still actively opposing him today. The theme of the Bible is the kingdom. Beloved, in Christ is the king. In Isaiah chapter 9, it, we've already read it. The magnitude of the birth of Christ cannot be overemphasized. It meant everything. In that prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. God is going to fulfill that promise to the nation of Israel. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. This Counselor lives in you. The Mighty God lives in you. The Everlasting Father, he is who you can speak to directly right now. The Prince of Peace. As an ambassador for Christ, reconciling men and women to God, what is our primary responsibility is to make peace through Christ. We don't have the luxury of humanitarian peace. We don't have the luxury. We can use those tools. But I'm telling you, at the end of the day, when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad, it will be, how did you reconcile men to God? Through the word of God, through the peace that I offered, through my word. Were you an ambassador for peace? The UN cannot keep up with us. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice for, from henceforth even forevermore. This is an eternal kingdom. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So Jesus is the solution to all of life's problems. The problem of sin, because he is the person of peace. And he has delivered on his promises. Today the battlefield is still hot with fiery darts of the wicked. Satan has not admitted defeat, but he's still a defeated foe. And until Jesus returns to take us home, we need to be busy about the ministry of reconciliation, being ambassadors, ministers of peace, reconciling men to Christ and women to Christ and children to Christ. Beloved, listen, we're on the clock. Hey, we may have won, but you ever see those games where people win too, and they, they let down their guard? Hey, this is not the time to let down our guard. It's the time to go forward and run it out. We are on the clock, and we have the power of the gospel, the victory of peace through Christ. And it's important that we don't fall asleep at this hour, that we stay focused on the mission. And so as you look forward to 2022, man, there is a whole world right now that doesn't have peace. They are, they are just, they just, everything in their life is, is just not at peace. And beloved, the people that have peace are us. But what a shame it would be for us to walk around with peace saying, yeah, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go to heaven. It's all good. No matter what, take my life. I'm good. And let people right next to us die and go to hell. You know what we can start with before we run out and try to witness, though we should run out and try to witness, is do what Abraham did and just start praying. Remember, he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's like, oh, God, save 50, you know, save 10. He's praying for Lot's family, ultimately. But who do you love? Start praying for him. And be prepared. We spent three or four weeks talking about intentional gospel outreach. Be willing to go and, and start conversations that pray that God turn these conversations into gospel conversations. Lord, help me pull someone out of the fire. Help me to deliver somebody that needs help through the gospel, through the power of the gospel, the good news, the good tidings of Jesus Christ. Because the power of peace He comes from the Prince of Peace. He's defeated sin, he's defeated death, and he's defeated that dragon. And beloved, Romans 8 tells you, you know what you are? You are more than a conqueror. Amen? Amen. Let's stand in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the victory we have in Christ. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the power over sin. We're 